Hi, I'm Dan Krikorian. And I'm Patrick Carney. And we're Slapping Glass. Welcome to Slapping Glass, where we explore basketball's best ideas, strategies, and coaches from around the world. Today, we're excited to welcome Zach Bover, assistant coach at Army West Point and curator of the highly popular pickandpop.net. Coach Bover is here today to discuss how to watch film, chunking down information for your team, off-ball cutting, an aberration cut, and takes part in our newest segment of Overrated or Underrated. If you haven't already, please make sure to subscribe to the podcast and give us a rating on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher. Follow us for daily detailed breakdowns on Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram, and subscribe to our Sunday morning newsletter where we consolidate much of the best that we've seen in the world of basketball. And now, please enjoy this entertaining and wide-ranging X and O extravaganza with Coach Zach Bovert. Coach, thanks so much for being on the podcast this afternoon. Uh, we're really excited to talk to you and, and nerd out a little bit X's and O's all over the map. So thanks for coming on. Huge fan uh, already. Uh, you, what you guys are doing in a quick time frame. I, uh, we were joking about it right before. Uh, I saw you guys pop up onto the scene and I was like, man, these are some hoop nerds. This is right up my alley. So uh, I think the audience we're going for is probably a bunch of you know a group of about 25 people that haven't seen sunlight in uh since friday evening since they got out of practice because they've just been hungered down watching film but um it'll be for a small crowd but i think the i, I think they'll love it well thank you for that and and yeah we most definitely would both consider ourselves um x and o junkies and nerds and so um before we jump into the x's and o's nerd fest I want to start with something that you recently were on uh, Chris Oliver's podcast, and it was a very interesting and thought-provoking interview that you gave about coaching with anger and what you've kind of learned about that. Um, and we also recently had Alan Keen on our podcast talking about vulnerability as a coach and empathy and, and kind of getting critical feedback from your players. And there was kind of some parallel stuff between your interview and Alan's. Yeah. and. I wanted to start with that because it was a really interesting subject and hear a little bit more your thoughts on that podcast, Coaching with Anger, and then kind of what you've learned from it as you approach this new year. Yeah, and it's uh, I loved your podcast with Alan, and actually I've connected with Alan since then about just some topics that he sent me an email, and we went back and forth a little bit, and Alan, uh, you know, Alan's just tremendous, and um, it's a conversation that was born out of uh, an exercise that I do with my players, our graduating seniors, because um, at that point, those guys are done playing for you. So there's no issue of playing time. And, you know, the question you ask them is you're going to get pretty honest answers. And I really try to really try to dig in and ask them questions and really ask for feedback. And I'm constantly doing that during the process. But I, I think there, you know, always there's that last uh, conversation when they're done playing for you, you'll get, you'll get some very raw feedback. And some of it isn't always, uh, perfect to hear, but essentially it's, Hey, what am I good at? What do I need to improve at? And, and really press them for honesty. And, um, a late conversation I had with kid that frankly didn't play very much, but, uh, 
you know, he gave me some very important feedback about um, where I was as coach and where I've grown, but he kind of touched on a point about coaching with anger. And for here at Army West Point, we're coaching kids that go on um, to leadership roles with the United States Army. And as I spent more time thinking about it, I wrote him a letter along with his other senior class about as you move into leadership roles, uh, uh, an emotion you're constantly going to be dealing with is, um, you know, that is anger at times. And oftentimes that anger is in response to things not going well. Um, and, and you feel an emotion. Um, and I, when I say feel it, I a little mean you, we all know it. I think as I said it, you can feel in your face. And I wrote him a letter saying, Hey, this is something I'm dealing with. I sent it to Chris, Chris said, I think the podcast here. And as we talked more, spoke more about it, I agreed with him because I think it's something that all coaches, especially young coaches, um, have to hear. And, uh, and Chris did an unbelievable job. Um, and it was a three-way conversation that I thought, you know, really got some cool points. And my point is, I know it helped me and I hope listening to it. And I've talked to several coaches kind of in the month and a half since that have reached out, said, Hey, that's a conversation I need to hear. Um, and I think it's really helped people. Um, you know, I think it's helped coaches. The podcast interview was, was really great. And you were so kind of just open and, and you're kind of vulnerable on the podcast about your own experience. Um, how do you think that, I guess that vulnerability to, with your players will like help you on the floor this year. At times during that podcast, I felt like I was laying on the couch and, you know, <laughs> right. Chris and I were like, you know, you know, telling me, uh, you know, but ultimately I think there's some deep rooted things and, and where we are as players is oftentimes it's broken people coaching broken people. And the, the scary thing is as a coach, you, you, as that power authority, you sometimes can impress those scars and dig them deep. And, you know, a book that, uh, I really recommend, uh, is a book called, well, a couple, um, any Brene Brown's books, Darren greatly is so good. Uh, it's so important. It's such an important book for, for me to read. My girlfriend was actually a coach herself had uh, had recommended that to me. Um, so that book's tremendous. And then there's a book season of life by Jeffrey Marks about, uh, Joe Ehrman, who coached Gilman School uh, football down in Baltimore, Maryland. And both those books are really important. And I think his book, that second book, really talks about the role of coaches and the impact they can have, positive and negative. Um, and I think as coaches, I don't think anyone goes out there trying to have a negative impact. But, you know, our oftentimes our emotions can have impacts on guys moving forward. So things that I'm doing, things that I've done, um, I think the, some of the tips that Shamal gave, I put into play right away. I think first, you know, first idea is being emotionally aware and coming up with habits of uh, being aware of your emotions. Uh, the one I love that she did is have an idea, have a physical reminder uh, in your life that you see of the role you want to play. So I actually, I printed out a photo just like she recommended of that. I had of a me with my arm around a player as saying, you know, that was taken this past year, that that's an idea of that. Hey, that's what I want to do. That's what, that's the role I want to play and just a constant reminder of it. Um, something that I actually had done this past year that really helped me in game. Um, and I don't know if I share this in the podcast or not, um, is I read, uh, Cubs, uh, Cubs way by Tom Verducci. Uh, and the best stuff in it is about Joe Madden on the top of Joe Madden's scorecard. He wrote D B A F F. And, uh, I actually put that on my play card at the top of my play card every year with an emphasis. I really wanted to be, calmer during games to my players uh, I, I think as a coach your role is to provide them solutions and try to bring value and, and help them i think too often assistant coaches are um 
kind of they walk some line between the hype man and sometimes it you know they haven't been given specific responsibilities but like oftentimes it's just too emotional and kevin eastman 90 10 90 of what you should do as an assistant should be analytical 10 percent emotional so i just wanted to remove myself and dbf aff stands for don't be a freaking fan and i wrote that at the top of my sheet and i really tried to make a big emphasis on being calmer and level-headed dbaff don't be a freaking fan there's another word uh i think I was okay, stands yeah. for, but uh <laughs> You know, uh, that, that goes along with mine of trying not to swear. Uh, if uh, the professors at West Point can uh, operate a lesson and teach a lot more complicated stuff than boxing out without swearing, I think I can figure it out, too. So that's another thing I uh, I, I try to do but fail at miserably during practice. But um, the, the point is I, no one's perfect. And I think as you know, first step is being aware of this stuff and, may, you know, making making strides to um living intentionally and operating with intentional emotions and not just resorting to default at the same time. I don't want to prove, I don't want to even purport to act like I have anything figured out in that area. I'm a, I'm a learn, I'm learning and trying just like anyone else. What, what is interesting is, you know, the first 10 episodes that we've had here on the podcast, we've had three or four different coaches, Mike Taylor, Alan Keene being two that stand out right away that, you know, have this sort of coaching with positivity type of philosophy and it's it's kind of an interesting almost coaching trend i know a lot of podcasts talk about it and so um also interesting though because you're at a place that comes from a you know a militaristic background where i don't know if that was always if that's something that happens all around you or if this is something kind of opposed to what you see on a day-to-day basis or how you kind of meld the two together and i actually think the roots of the old school way the dictator scream way is grounded actually if we want to go all the way back i actually think it's got its basis in the war um and when i say the war i mean world war one or even world war two because think about that when that when those wars ended those people came back and lots of times they were they were in a military they were in a military lifestyle and they came back and oftentimes those people really flooded into our school systems as teachers and coaches so you have these people that had learned in the war as you know seeing a certain kind of leadership, you know, which is kind of suited for war and they brought it to athletics and it just, they coach kids that way and they treated their assistants that way. And then those players became coaches and the cycle kind of started. And I think it reached a point and I think we're in a very good place, you know, in a better place now. So I think at some point, uh, the business became more sophisticated and I think people became more in tune with their emotions and people became more willing to say, I don't want to be coached that way. And coaches started saying, hey, maybe there's a better way to do this. So to answer yeah. your question about, you know, is there a vulnerability? Is there an awkwardness? But no, I think I think kids want it nowadays. I think I, yeah. I think and frankly, I think the good coaches had it figured out 50 years ago when everyone else is fine. is coming around. Dean Smith didn't coach that way. And I'm, hey, listen, I'm not saying you can't be successful. Um, now I think there's a limitation to success and I think there's a shelf life for that success with that dictator style now. But my point is, I think the kids have changed and that they, they're open to their emotions and they're more willing to say like, I don't like that. And people talk about the negativity of transferring. Well, one positivity about transfer is if you're in a situation you don't like, and you're not being treated the way you want to be treated, you can go seek out another, uh, another Avenue. So it's not always a negative thing. Um, so I, I think the, to answer your question about vulnerability, I think, you know, it's open with open arms by, by my players because I think, frankly, it's, oh, you, you, you care about the best way for me to learn. All right, let's have that conversation. Absolutely. It's good stuff. Well, 
uh, as we kind of pivot now towards X's and O's and, and getting into the, the basketball um, part of this, my first question for you, and I've, I'm so glad you're here because I've been a big fan. Uh, so many of us have been big fans of what you've done over the years at pickandpop.net and the, the kind of way that you see the game. How do you watch film? How do you find things to, you know, post to people? Like, what's yeah. your process of doing that? Yeah, and I actually, I, I this question sometimes I struggle with because it, it's not efficient. I, I I wish I had this like clear, but I had this clear like, oh, I do this, this, and this. It's actually not efficient. I think there's something to that. I think it's something that like it shouldn't be efficient, and you should. I micromanage it, and I I go over it. I watch clips too many times, or. I'll, uh, I'll, you know, the clip that like it's 30 seconds, just so you know, it didn't take 30 seconds for me to put together. It took, you know, right. three or four oh, yeah. hours. And there's sometimes where like <laughs> I'll do go on that four hour rabbit hole and it won't produce a thing. So my point is, I don't think it should be efficient. And, and so I, I don't, I also don't recommend it. If this, if it's not what you love, like I, I'm actually reading uh, some stuff right now and it's some things I've read even this year. And by no means am I referring to myself in this life, but like, Leonardo da Vinci's book really uh, creativity shouldn't be rushed and it isn't efficient and you should just be curious for curiosity's sake. And so like, I don't have a great, like, like life, like, you know, Hey, book process to it. And even, uh, Naval, um, kind of talks about that as well is that you should pick something you love and then you should just chase it for just the sake of what you're doing. And there, and there shouldn't be a net result. So, uh, how do I watch film? All right, a couple of things, but then also I think I have a couple of things to do. Is early on I had a, I, I had a process. Uh, Tom Crean, my my career was changed early by a conversation with, I had with Tom Crean. I wrote I was a you know I was a Buzz Williams wannabe. I, I wrote every non-player a letter once a month, and you know and, and you know some some relationships I have to this day come out of that. And one conversation I had with Tom Crean, and he was nice enough to you know call me and. He's as intense as you can imagine, but he, you know, one P, one thing he recommended is, hey, everyone says recruit, recruit, recruit. Yes, there's recruiting is important, but also you need to find a way that you know. There's also a need for basketball coaches, and how you become knowledgeable basketball is watching basketball and immerse yourself in it and try to pursue that path. And so, uh, you know, he recommended me watch an hour of film every day. And at first, I started watching. I had no idea what I was talking about. I had these black and white marble notebooks. I wish I had. They're actually in my office. Um, and I was filling them up because Dick Whitmore, a D3 coach at uh, Colby College, actually up in Maine, where I uh, where I'm from, had recommended you know starting to coach a notebook. So I literally would I had a diagrams I would cut out with a with a pair of scissors and and glue them. And so at all times in my bag, I had a glue stick, scissors, and these notebooks, and I'd glue a set and I'd say University of Dayton, you know, box set, and I tape pasted in there. And my point is that wasn't efficient at all, but it was just my process watching our film every day and anything I liked, I would write down. So, um, that's kind of how I started. And it was just an hour a day, but it's, my point is if you're, if you're making yourself and forcing yourself to do it, you're going to get bored and you're not going to see results and you're just going to stop doing it. So ultimately it's what I love to do. Um, couple things that I've tried to do recently to become more efficient in the process. One in the off seasons, I, I, I felt like I, I need to have a focus of, I want to get better at this. So, uh, you know, two summers ago, it was, uh, two summers ago, it was, um, secondary offense. Last summer was zone offense. We, you know, Patriot League's a heavy zone league. We play these two, we play, uh, two games a year against, uh, this, uh, inferior college, uh, 360 miles South of us. 
called the Naval Academy. They play 60 minutes of zone. And, and frankly, we couldn't score against their zone. Um, so my summer was focused. I was obsessed with zone offense. And uh, we kind of put something together with, that we really liked and we were very successful. We pounded those guys twice or impounded. We beat them twice. But um, they played a ton of two, three zone and for about 60 of those 80 minutes and, and, and it showed up uh, this past summer. I, uh, I, I focused on a couple of things. I want to be better in set plays, but also I wanted to immerse myself more. I felt like sometimes out of summers, I would just come away with like watching 200 ATOs of this team, 200 ATOs of this team and like having a bunch of ATOs, but like, how does it fit? And so I really want what I wanted to do was really spend two weeks examining a team and really immersing myself in that team. And so I studied, um, I picked just different teams. That I went, I picked Davidson, I picked Northwest Missouri state, the Toronto Raptors, Johns Hopkins at the division three level, uh, who else? Tenerife, um, uh, who else, who else, uh, Auburn's transition game. Uh, I really studied baseline outs as a whole, trying to really get better there. Uh, there's another European study, Zalgaris I studied. So my point is I really spent, I tried to spend two weeks and really ask myself, why are these guys good? And, uh, that really helped me. Uh, another thing that helped, that's helped me and I was kind of inspired by playmakers advantage is I've really tried to focus myself to not watch the basketball. So there's a book called playmakers advantage. It's actually the book, Tony Bennett had his entire staff read this off season. Um, and I thought it was very good. And the se- the middle section was really good. Essentially they try to get to what, what does a playmaker. And when they say playmaker, they're referring to different sports. Maybe it's Peyton Manning, maybe it's Wayne Gretzky, maybe it's a uh, messy in soccer, maybe it's Chris Paul. What are they doing? What are they seeing? And can we train it? Can we teach it? And one thing they recommend, they recommend two exercises that I, I've done and I've really liked. One, and this is like ultimate hoop nerd out. Ulti- oh, if you want to train yourself to not watch the basketball, because that's something Larry Brown always talks about. Don't watch the ball. Don't watch the ball. Um, watch the other guys around it. Is they, they, they talk about this exercise to watch a play and then close your computer and try to recite exactly what happened in that play and then go back, watch the play again, see how well you did and do another play and do another play. And so it's something I've tried to do over the last three, four months is three plays a day. I'll watch them. And, at, and it's funny, it's as your brain's working, you, you literally feel almost a physical fatigue of trying to recreate it in your mind. And then you go back and you watch it and you get better at it. You get better mm-hmm. at it as you go. So that's one thing I recommend is as you try to get better watching all 10 guys at once, that's something that's very helpful. Um, another thing that I think is helpful is um, two other things. One is one other one from the book is pausing the film at when you think that advantage uh, or that decision is coming. Pause it. Because I understand you can learn so much more from the great players than you can from the, even the good coaches. All right. Pause the film and ask yourself, what is the play here? And it forces you to be a, not a passive participant, being an active participant. And this is, you know, this is what I think. And then you kind of can see yourself being fooled and you can see yourself connecting the dots or, you know, as a guy's going or maybe not connecting the dots. And Chris Paul sees something or feels something that you didn't necessarily see. Um, there's one other, you know, the one other piece that I think has helped me, and it's just something as um, chunking information and labeling things and actions, even if the label doesn't make sense to anyone in the world other than me, has really helped me that because it's allowed me to say, hey, that's, uh, you know, that's, that's Carolina ball screen to Philly, to, to Philly drill pick and roll uh, in, into, a, uh, into a go on the weak side you know, to, you know, to a drift pass, like 
and some of that stuff is stuff you know, but I, I, I swear I have some actions that literally don't make any sense to anyone other than me. And it's like, that's allowed me to kind of see a third, 25 seconds of play and be able to chunk and label it and be able to really categorize it for myself. That's a long winded answer that, you know, <laughs> is, is as nerdy as it gets. Loved it. Coach, as you then go basically from, let's say, the video room to the court. So you spend yeah. all this time, like you said, learning the zones or, you know, reviewing a bunch of clubs. Are you, are you able to kind of pick up as you watch it? Like, hey, this, this is a great play. It's good for my knowledge, but this isn't going to work with my guys. Like, how are you then, like I said, then translating to the court and saying what works, you know, what's just a great play, but it doesn't bring my team success? Yeah, and you're constantly trying to look at things through the prism of what you do and what program you work for. And Coach Jimmy Allen, you know, is really great in that he's him and I are really working hand in hand on the offense side of the ball, and he gives me a ton of autonomy there with it. And so I'm constantly, you know, he. So I also understand that I'm almost in a utopia of where I'm at in terms of as an assistant coach, really being able to have some autonomy with uh, combined with him and being able to put some things into work. But it's any film that's watch you watch is it's through the prism of how does this apply to who I am as a coach or maybe how, where I'm at right now. No, I think as an assistant, you shouldn't just pigeonhole yourself to the system you're at right there because you should ultimately or you should always kind of have your own notebook and saying, if I ever got a chance um, to run my own program, hey, this is having an idea how I'd want to play. And so almost there should be a back end part of your notebook of like, hey, stuff that I like that maybe we don't do right now because maybe we're a fast paced team, but I just don't see, I don't see myself playing that way. It would be. And so you should be constantly thinking about maybe how it fits into your program or how it fits into your general philosophy. Does this, does this fit and and to tack on? And I swear I'll be getting in and out of these questions answers so quicker here. All right. But no, you're good to, no, to tack good. on. I think it's very important that like you have an idea of first principle thinking of why does that work? Constantly ask yourself, why does that work? And try to break it down to explain to your players of why it works. And even then, maybe it doesn't fit for what you do. But if you have an understanding of why that works, like Davidson offense, we're, we're not going to run the Davidson break here at Army West Point. But my thinking is, can I steal one or two things away? And I did. One thing I stole was their cutters don't – I'm sorry, freeze. Their, their players, when they catch them on the perimeter, the ball doesn't go right down. Ball McKillop through, you know, through coaching – gets their guys to catch and look and look at the cutters, look at the rim. And, and that allows their, all that cutting to happen is because that guy doesn't put the ball down and dribble right away. The second thing is their receivers, their handlers look at their cuts all the way through the basket. And then their cutters finish their cuts all the way through the basket. So they get stuff late. They get stuff late to the rim or they get stuff late as a skip because that guy cut it cut so hard that he pulled in on the weak side. And then the third thing I saw was there's great, value and great power offensively if you can move that post player out of the paint and move him to the ball side corner that opens up the entire floor because one the rim's now open two probably their biggest player is now guarding the ball side corner and he's the furthest away from affecting anything at the rim um than, than he can be so my point is constantly ask yourself why and try to get it all the way back to the first principle of why does this work 
And then I see, hey, does this something fit, fits in with my team? And again, that's not something I get right because, I mean, there's even some things I, I was, I'm probably like you guys, I watch way too many clinics during quarantine. Yeah. So <laughs> and we started practice, man. I, I had, you know, I had my 39 different things I wanted to teach. And even I said it to the team, I, I said to the team uh, during a film session Saturday morning where I said, I said, guys, all right, we're going to go back to the old way we did that because what I tried to teach you a month ago was just me watching too many coaches' clinics all quarantine. So my bad. We're going to go back to the old way, scrap what I tried to teach. It was just me overthinking it. You know, me and Dan the other day were talking about, you know, uh, being like having having your system as a coach or rather, you know, being more adapting your system to the players. But I, I think what's important, what you talked about is, you know, looking at watching film and kind of developing your own philosophy, but can you kind of differentiate what you mean by developing your own philosophy versus like, yeah, just developing a system you want to run with a team that you don't necessarily even have yet. Yeah. And I think you, you know, you're asking yourselves questions. This has been fun because to be honest, you're, you're, you're asking a guy that's never gotten a chance to be a head coach and never been able to really form his own. So there, there's an idea of, I think there's a philosophy and identity you want to play with. And that really you're asking like what drives winning from an offense perspective, what drives winning from a from a from a defense perspective? So you kind of have that idea in mind. Now we all know there are different ways to get to those things, and so as you go, and we're all different because what I if I ask Dan, uh, what you th- hold important on the offense side and the defense side to be different than what pay what you had, Pat, and be different than what I had, and not one of us is right, not one of us is wrong. But we also have to understand there's different ways for us to get to each one of those things. So offensively, it's, you know, I, I want to get a great shot for Army basketball every time down. Like that's something that's essential for me. But there, I understand there's different ways to do it. And depending on your personnel, there are different, there are different ways to do it. It's funny, like, so like this year, we're going to be a lot more, um, the ball's going to move a lot better. And uh, I think through five guys, a lot more. Um, that doesn't make what we did last year wrong because last year we had a point guard that was, a wizard. I mean, just a, you know, a, a absolute, um, just wizard with a ball in the pick and roll. So frankly, it was, why, why are we going to zip that ball all the way around when like, it's a lot better when three's got it and he's coming off a middle pick and roll. So, um, there's different ways to get to that. And I think you constantly have to be asking yourself, like think about it this way. And, and this is Rick Majerus wanted, wanted a couple stats going into halftime every game. He wanted to know the rebounding margin. Um, because defensive rebound percentage and offensive rebound hadn't really hit yet, but uh, we won't hold that against him because you know he did, he just didn't know because he, he's as good of a coach as there ever was. And the second thing is he wanted to know is who, who you know what are the field goal attempts on my two best players. Um, ultimately, are our best players getting our shots, and our ultimately are our best players put in those the situations that are in their strength zone. So, um, Patrick, I, I hope that answers your question. I think you have an idea of what drives winning. And then you're constantly thinking, then who is my team, particularly who are my best players and what, what yeah. can we do to get them to their strength zones as much as possible? Oh yeah. That, that was perfect. Coach. Yeah. Thank you. Zach, how much do you, when you're thinking about offense, offensive philosophy or, or what you're going to put in, you know, let's say um, the day of practice, how much does analytics come into what you do on the offensive end or, or even defensive end of to the system you run or the, the sets you put in? Um, yeah, they, they come in, um, but they come in a little bit and maybe it's the value of where we're at right now in 2020 that like, it's not as overt, like 
this is a good play because it nets a open three or, or a shot at the rim. It's a good play because it gets the shot we want. And I think sometimes some people were ahead of it. Like uh, Tom Thibodeau has got a great line. He says, you know what we used to call those analytics? Stats. Um, and like <laughs> Dean Smith was doing points per possession. And maybe, and listen, the three-point line going, you know, putting that line outside there and saying that shot, even though it's one foot behind, is now worth, you know, 50% more was obviously important. But like, like Tim Kloos couldn't have told you, doesn't know the website for Ken Palm, but like working for Tim at Iona, who I'm literally is an offensive genius, like the smartest offense coach I've ever met. And it's not even remotely close. And he was a high school coach in Long Island in the eighties. And like, he probably couldn't tell you exactly why um, the analytics behind why a three was great but he intuitively knew it. Rick Pitino intuitively knew that that was a great shot. So my point is some of these great coaches were onto it before. So to answer your question, I don't think it plays this overt role of, Hey, we're doing this because analytics say so, but it also backs up what some coaches felt. Um, yeah. The turnover is a terrible play. Um, now I don't know if there's a coach that would argue, Hey, it's not a terrible play, right. but like, you know, so when we talk about the importance of taking care of the ball, yeah, it aligns with, you know, what, analytics say and also analytics in the nba will say you know do whatever you can to get your best players the shots you know however many shots they can get and, and so i think some smart basketball play you know ideas fall in line with analytics because they fall in line with analytics um so I, I would say not like overly but also i do think we are influenced by you know you know, constantly influenced by what that what the analytics say and where we're trying to go and i think really the kind of the um, cutting the frontier with analytics is is shot quality, and you know, can we yeah. examine the quality shots we get? And does is that a is finding some way to put a number or a value system on that? Is that more indicative of how good we are offensively um, over the point total at the end of the game? And Lenny Acuff, who I think is up there with Tim Close with the best offensive mind there is in the world you know, as an idea of, you know, there's a huge difference between playing well offensively and shooting offensively. Now, one is something you can control. Now, unfortunately, the second one, which is shooting well, probably you have a better chance of winning the game, which is what's scary about it a little bit. But um, I think having an idea of how good of a shot did I get and just to prove that there's no, there, you know, nothing's original underneath the sun is Pete Newell uh, talked about paying attention to shot quality over the points he talked about that oh 65 years ago. So right, <laughs> uh, you don't understand. Like, like there's nothing, and that's why. Like even all that film, I've still come nothing has I've come across is something I've come up with. It's all stuff that's stolen. But I, I love that point by Newell. Sure uh, about analytics. Yeah, and the reason I was asking because as we sort of develop our stuff here, you know, we have some nice analytics from let's say the year before on our best players and hey they shot you know 52 percent from the right block as opposed to the left block or our, our three-point shooter shot um you know the different spots on the floor he shot a different percentage or whatever it is and so when you start to think about play design saying yeah. okay well if we're going to run some sort of screen the screener action for our best shooter he shot it you know five percentage points higher last year from the left wing as opposed to the right so we should you know, maybe try to have stuff go that way. I guess that's sort of yeah. what I was thinking about. And, and one thing I thought, that, and that's a great question. And it's something that kind of scares me about using analytics is, is, is it a big enough sample size? 
that you can start to trust yeah. that stuff. And that's what scares me about college analytics. And especially as you get into lineup data and data is, is that falsifiable? Is that like, you know, and you know, there's something called small sample size theater of like, Hey, just so you know, like you mark one of those as a make and one as a miss, like all of a sudden it tips it, you know, way in the other direction. And that's, what's kind of scary about trusting those analytics too much. Um, because there's some people like, you know, are, do we have a big enough sample size that we can actually start pulling ideas from it? And at what point, how many, how many possessions do we need to start to be really be able to say, uh, Hey, that's where we're at right now. And, and that three yeah. point line just really can, it's so noisy because of the, you know, what the variability and the volume of makes and misses can really move it one direction or another. So that's something I really am worried about using in a circumstance like that, just because I don't think it's falsifiable. I, I just don't think you can, uh, I don't think there's a big enough sample size in a lot of situations to really, to, to state that. To make it, yeah. Okay, cool. Now, if a kid, if, now if a kid is saying, hey, I really love the ball in the right block and he, it's something that you know when you feel, I'm, yes, absolutely. But just the idea of basing what we're running based on what synergy says after 10 games, like, it, you know, it scares me. I think it's more something, again, that you have a feel as a coach and you're going to feel that uh, a little bit. And um, Bill Belichick has a great point about analytics when he says analytics are for uh, the, you know, 48-52 and the 49-51 decisions. Um, anything bigger than that, should you should as a coach, that's what you're watching film for. Like, you should be able to, kind of seek that out. Now, there's some people, as you read it with social science that say the flaw we have as human beings is we're not able to take a large sample size, a uh, large data size, and really make the, because we struggle to kind of be able to uh, manipulate and keep an yeah. idea of averages. But I, I really like that point of that, like, it's really for the small things. And if we're admitting that, we understand the wins are just on the margins there. But again, that's what you're trying to do. You're trying to find a point for your team here and there in a game, you know, here and there. Coach, piggybacking off of Dan's point, but I guess not looking, not so much with the the advanced stat aspect, but if you have a team that's predominantly right-handed or even if you have a left-hander, are you, when you are tailoring your plays, keeping in mind like, hey, if we're going to run a turnout, like I want all of our right-handers going off of this way. So he's yeah. attacking with his right hand or, you know, he's a lefty. So we're going to zipper him up this way. So he's, taking it with his left. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's something, especially the handedness of guys. Absolutely. And, and I also don't want to poo-poo like Dan's point, um, Dan's point about the block. Like, again, if that's something that you, you know, can base that on, absolutely. So you should constantly be thinking about things to get guys to their right hand or left hand or get guys going at a direction of a great shooter where if they help off, it's, a, it's an open three um, or putting a guy, a great shooter in a single side bump you know, whatever it is, absolutely. Um, I yeah. think that's something you constantly need to be thinking about. And it's funny for the last four years, we've had a lefty point guard and it was like part of the thing I did this summer. I was like, so wait, we need to flip all of our sets to the other side of the floor. Um, <laughs> right. And it's something because you, you should be thinking about that stuff as a coach. You mentioned coach, the bump. Uh, what's kind of been perplexing me lately as I watch a lot of European basketball and games in general, when teams hedge, and they're hedging to, yeah. you know, the, the point, the, the penetration is going to the single side. So there's a two man side on the weak side. What determines in your opinion, or, you know, what are you a fan of, of who bumps? You know, I've seen teams who have a the high guy aggressively bumps or the low guy sinks into the, the zone, 
or sometimes just the two guys will kind of like zone him up as he's rolling down. Can you speak on that a little bit? What's the philosophy behind each? Yeah, I think it's the, I think it's the low guy, but also with an understanding that I coach at a different level than the top level in Europe and in NBA, because in NBA, that guy is so good. Like, and I think this comes into play a lot of times um, with like guys in the short roll too, but it's the same idea. Cause it's, it's catching the ball in the scene of like in the NBA, if you let Al Horford get through the seam without a bump, um, he'll just pick you apart in that seam. And my point is, I think in a college game, the the screeners aren't quite good enough that you need to hit them with that high tag that you can let them catch it there and can play four and three other places and you'll be fine. Whereas in the NBA, I mean, you let those guys catch that ball in the short roll. I mean, they will just pick you apart. So I, I say the low, but with an understanding that because that's the level I'm at and that's kind of, that's context that I can provide. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. I think what well, we just broke down for a week, uh, Mancho Fernandez is loved it over Doros, and, and he they're so good at you know if if the the high tag on the two side comes over to stop the short roll, they're just going to flare on the yeah. bottom and and drift that yeah. guy to the corner and skip it for a three and play. And so you know there's a counter obviously for everything, but at that level, those guys yeah. can make that pass pretty. And easily. getting your guys to think of like you know. What it, what it, what is the defense doing, and what can we do to solve that coverage? And that's why I love what Fran Fischel says about having solutions to coverages. What is our solution to this coverage? And um, you know, and then on the other side, what is our solution to a spread pick and roll? What is our solution to a single tag situation, double tag situation? I, that's that's you're constantly providing your players, and you want to have a little bit of flexibility in that of. Hey, do we have a plan B if this isn't working? Yeah, I mean, speaking along, just confusing the the tag. Uh, how much in, are you seeing in the Patriot League of like these off ball cuts with the pick and roll? We stumbled on something really good late in the year. Uh, well, in Patriot play with uh, our kid Josh Caldwell, we really try to weaponize him as a cutter and with some different stuff, both with forty five cuts and both with the baseline cuts. So, uh, I think the Patriot League, I think that's the next level because defenses and ball screen defense getting sophisticated enough that if you give them a chance to load up and get in their coverage, um, they're very good with it. But now as you're getting pre um, think about it as like pre snap movement in football, as you're getting pre snap movement mm-hmm. that can distort the coverage or as things are happening, if you can start cutting guys that can really, uh, you know, cuts can really distort zone ups, which in a lot of situations, a ball screen defense ends up becoming that can really sending guys through those zone ups can really distort them and really kind of stress test that coverage of, are they ready to react to that movement? And some teams have been great. Like, uh, and Colgate is the one that jumps out to me is they're 45 cuts and everyone, any, anyone listening should, should pull up and watch that video because Matt Langle at Colgate is just a tremendous coach. He really is. Tucker and Thorson is a video on, uh, I'll retweet it when this goes up just so guys can see it. They did a great, they're the ones that did a great video on Colgate's 45 cuts. And it was, it, it gave me nightmares because <laughs> it was just something that I've dealt with for the last four years. I'm like, I gotta, I gotta watch these again. And just for the record, there are way too many army clips on there. So, uh, you know, despite being a big fan of it, it didn't help us stop a lot of fun. Coach, what are, what are you stressing then to defend the 45 cut that if your man cuts, you stay with, or if you're bumping low, you just let the low guy take it. You got to have a plan, but what's good about the 45 cut is, and I love things like this, it punishes good defense. 
Because what a what the forty five yeah. cut really punishes is a team that's committed to hugging yeah. up the nail and hugging up the elbow. And so I love things like that where it's like it's using your sound defensive principles against you. So um, I, I think you have to have an idea of what you're going to do against that 45 cut. And I think a lot of it has to do with how aggressive you are going to be on the ball because the more aggressive you are on the ball and understand why of why that 45 cut works, the more aggressive you're going to be on the basketball, the more the low man, if we're going at a two side has to take on the rim and be a uh, mig or low man, whatever people are calling it. They have to take on more of a emphasis. And now if you're cutting a guy alongside of it, it's, you know, you know, can you switch that out? And can you now that that high guy takes on the next guy because that your MIG is so committed to taking on the role. So um, it, it's something that I think you have to have a plan, but you also have to understand why this works and what, you know, what's caught, what's, what's causing us trouble. I think there's a lot of value to switching it out, but as Colgate will do, you, you, you will call You'll see what Colgate will do is they'll start screening that guy in. And now all of a sudden they really get you moving. And, and then, the, the second you start worrying more about off ball stuff, just so you know, they're killing you on the basketball too. And, and Brad Stevens, <laughs> right. uh, Brad Stevens had a great point where he says, anytime in a, I'll come out of a game saying our pick and roll defense stunk and we couldn't manipulate this spacing, this action. And they, they were just killing us with that. I'll go back and watch the game and I'll say, you know, 95% of the time I'll say we weren't good enough on the basketball. And it's something you always got to keep in mind is it starts with what start, what starts screwed up and screwed up as Steve Clifford would say you got to get that part right on the basketball because no matter what you're doing off the ball, it won't work if you're getting torched on the ball, uh, both with the ball handler or with that, if that screener is late or not and is not in his right position. Uh, just while we're on this topic, and you don't have to divulge any secret sauce information that you guys might run this year, but... No, we got no, see, we got no <laughs> secret sauce here at Army. We're... <laughs> We're, 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 <laughs> I'm coming on here looking for answers from you guys. So, <laughs> so but you're you're someone that you're you're constantly watching all these other teams, and and yeah. you're kind of you know on top of some of the current trends. What are some actions that you're seeing more recently that seem like they're really difficult for teams to guard on a regular basis? Um, the 45 cut is, is something. Um, is something that, you know, is really tough to guard. That idea of uh, playing to the short roll early and getting movement off that double side, whether it's a, uh, whether it's a baseline cut, a concept that, you know, is huge in Europe that I call wheel action of hit the, you know, anytime the ball's going on a two side, even off, you know, if the ball handler or if that ball handler hits the, or hits the short roll, cutting that guy along the baseline and filling to that corner, almost in a cut and replace action uh, has been really good. Um, and that's something that Fenerbahce does really at a high, high level. Um, what else do I like? I, that idea of, um, what I'm calling an apparition cut of coming at a double ball screen and with us, with a big first in the, in the, in the small second and him ghosting underneath that oh, roll yeah. man on an empty side and with the five man rolling, it really distorts that coverage because all of a sudden, if you, you know, it ends up open, open up the rim a little bit. And that's something that's been popular here in America. Uh, Furman does it well. Houston does it well. Um, we've actually had some success with it here at Army. 
Um, so that's some that, you it know, kind of sounds like a shallow, yeah. is that kind of like a shallow cut? Under? Yeah. You're shallow cutting underneath that roll, man. Uh, so okay. shallow yeah. it's the second guy, shallow, shallow, sorry, coach. The second it's, guy, it's, shallow a, cutting? it's a second guy. Yeah. It's second guy shallow cutting what, what I call a ghost screen. So for us, a slip is a, is cutting off my screen early and going to the rim. A ghost is a slip that where I cut off my screen, but go to the perimeter. And that's something you're seeing just more and more popular, especially as the skill level goes up in the NBA. Um, that would be another concept in itself would be just the ghost screen of bringing that guy together and giving him that ability to cut off it, especially as switching becomes more and more important. So that is almost a ghost within a double ball screen of coming underneath it. Uh, that's an action I really like. Um, you know, just, you know, finding ways to, like I said, to move, move for guys as that ball screen's happening, or maybe shortly before it's happening, I think that stuff uh, that you're seeing, uh, it, you know, it's really hard to guard, especially as skill level on the floor goes up and guys are more open to playing um, the skilled guy at that four position or even at that five position. Absolutely. And then I would say if I can add Please. one more, the Bilboa action, uh, the Bilboa action is, it's as beautiful as it gets. Just the ability to throw the ball into the pick and roll as a as a vehicle for that guy to create shots and uh, for himself and for others and the ability to play with different screening actions. It's just it's really pretty basketball, but it's also really good because teams are getting less and less comfortable defending that post up and defending that ball when it's behind their head. Right. And um, I constantly think you need to be finding some way, despite how many you know how many threes you might be taking, you have to find some way to get the ball behind the defense's head via. Uh, the post up via the drive. Um, and I think, you know, even if you're throwing it there, not necessarily to post it, but to throw it in to play out, I think that's very important. So I, I've loved the, I've loved the Bilbo action. It's, it's been cool to see how Quinn Snyder kind of brought it over the NBA game. And I think you're going to see it more and more in college this year. Coach, just for, for listeners, just could, could you define that action? Like where the, you're, you're saying Bilbo action, like as far as yeah. where exactly it is on yeah. the floor. And Patrick, you got to help me if I'm butchering that pronunciation. That's just, uh, I, had a, I had a Texas high school coach that uh, he called me last week and he said, he goes, I was struggling. I was struggling to pronounce it. So I thought it looked enough like Balboa. So, you know, what we're calling that Rocky action because I can't, I can't pronounce that thing. So I, I love that. I got a kick out of that. So Balboa action is just throwing the, being able to throw the ball um, to a block. And oftentimes you're seeing it often it's better almost if that catch is moved off the block just because it gives the cutters more space and the, 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 uh, the entry guy throws the ball into the block and that second sprint oftentimes will like to do it with where they're thrown to a guy that's not their five man. And it's set where the entry guy throws the ball in the post and the five man comes over and sets a flare on the handler. And it's almost like a Princeton, you know, it, there's a Princeton aspect to this where that guy now comes off the flare screen into a split game with another perimeter player with one guy going to the rim, one guy going back to the ball and the guy going back to the ball is going to get another screen from the five. So oftentimes it would be right wing enter into the right block. All right. That guy, the entry guy comes off the flare screen, comes together with a guy in the left slot. That guy might tight curl him to the rim looking for a layup. And now that again, that original entry guy is now flying back off of the uh, five man looking for a shot on the right wing. It's something that again, Quinn Snyder, I give him credit for bringing over to America, but some of the Miami heat used a ton in the bubble this year. And it's a, it's a beautiful action. I think it's something that you're going to see more and more in America. And uh, like anything, you just, 
if you want to see what uh you want to see what's going to come in college basketball and nba this year just go watch what was being done three years ago in europe because they they seem to be (laughs) their coaches seem to be about three years ahead of us with uh some of the great stuff they're running and great stuff they're doing um both offensively and defensively i mean the next thing switch is a great example of that and you know so much of what they're doing and um what's interesting is how aggressive they are on the ball screen in europe And, and i wonder there's part of me that wonders is there any way that comes back to America or it's simply because I, I was surprised just how everyone in Europe still plays two bigs or when I say still plays two bigs, maybe they were playing smalls and their skill level is just so good in that four position, but they are, you know, for the most part, they're playing a four and a five or in America, it's really gotten to the point where it's three and a four, really basically two wings. And then there's playing the five in America. And some teams are playing, being so different playing another skill guy at the five in America, but it was interesting in Europe teams are hedging ball screens and teams are really for the most part playing some little version of two bigs, but with one of, with skill level at all those positions, but yeah. still, uh, you know, post up threats and legit size of the four. You quickly mentioned next there. Um, we're big fans yeah. of it. D- yeah. Do you see it getting to, to the States or in the college level? Um, you know, why hasn't it kind of caught on as much as it is in like Europe? Yeah. Um, I think one reason is to give credit to the European players. I think it's, um, I think it's a, it is a complex action. And I think just the intelligence in Europe is, is so impressive to me when I watch those games, the, the, the next level reads that are, that are being made. Um, uh, so I think that's part of it is the just intelligence level. I think it will come over at some point because um, Toronto Raptors, uh, have really been the NBA team that I think has done it the most. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with the Spanish influence on their staff. And I think potentially as they've had more success and uh, I'm not going to the, their assistant that just got the Indiana job. I'm not going to try to butcher his name and pronunciation of his name. So maybe he brings that and then be, you know, brings that to Indiana and then it kind of starts spreading. I could easily see it spread in the NBA. And then um, there could be some trickle down to college, which I find interesting because um, I swear even five years ago, it was actually a trickle up where stuff happened in college and it would kind of trickle up to the NBA. And it's funny in the recently, in the last couple of years, I, I, I see it much more going down. I see it starting the NBA and then people are now doing it. Like, I really think that goes all the way back. Maybe, maybe the ice of like, it was big in the NBA and then it made its way down to college. And uh, I think it's more and more happening nowadays. Um, is NBA to college, but maybe it could shift uh, pretty quickly with a concept or two. Um, so I, I do think it'll make its way into America, but I think it's also, uh, you have to give credit to the, you know, just incredible intelligence of the players in Europe as being why maybe uh, it looks easier than it, than it actually is. And, and that's what the brilliance of the European players to pull it off. Yeah. If we can pivot to kind of fun little game called overrated or underrated. And so, like we're going to give you a concept and you could just, yeah. you know, quickly overrate or underrate it and maybe, you know, quickly why you think so. And then we'll kind of move through, right. you know, we'll, we'll see how many we get like through. It. So, um, this is, this is the inaugural time we're doing it. So we're excited <laughs> to do this with you. I, li- I like it. All right. I'm <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, uh, overrated, underrated beating Navy. Underrated. I'm telling you, you're, yeah, that's, I mean, just, <laughs> You don't realize that other places and this rivalry is just special. And like when I got hired here, I was like, man, this is that serious. Huh? You get, like we're going to talk about this game 365 days a year. Yes, it is. So underrated. It is the coolest thing. I've coached in NCAA tournaments. 
playing Nate in those games is as cool of an experience as there is. So uh, I'll go underrated just because it's something that is completely unique to these two places. And it's just the immense respect we have for them. And uh, I, I hope the, it's mutual coming back to us, but it is really neat just playing in those games. Cause you're, you're, I mean, you're talking about those class of individuals that are competing at that point uh, on, you know, on that court are just unbelievable. So I'm going underrated there. Good. Just your average basic two, three zone defense overrated or underrated. Man, I thought it was overrated, but it was fine. Um, the NBA gave me pause and just how willing NBA coaches were to just put a two, three out there and, and get their players in two, three alignment and just say, screw it. But also it reached a level that's a little, like, I don't know if the stats actually back that up and then it, to ag- it actually generate stops enough. So um, I am amazed at how many coaches, I'll say this, how many college programs play two, three zones with not much coaching beyond getting in a two, three alignment. Right. I, I'll say this. So I'm going to go, I'm going to say overrated with it. And what's kind of what's infuriating is you'll be playing a team and you might be struggling to like score against a bad two, three zone. And you're pulling your hair out saying, why is this happening? So I'll say overrated with an understanding. It drives me nuts at times. So, you know, when we're not executing against it. Yeah. And it's just, it's, it's funny. Cause like you said too, recently, you know, the, the box and one triangle and two, these, these exotic zones have become popular, you know, Nick nurse doing it with the Raptors. And so just your, your basic vanilla two, three sometimes is just super effective. And what it does is sometimes it makes the offense stand up and, yeah. and it stops them being aggressive and then maybe that's a value in it. So maybe, the, you know, there is, there is value. All right, coach, my question or overrated, underrated, rebounding drills in practice overrated uh <laughs> chris oliver one of the reasons he started his podcast he, he was thinking about starting his podcast and he said and i said uh we need to discuss and see you can run a whole podcast series see if someone can find you a game like rebounding drill and like that was it like because they don't exist um and they are just they're just asking for injuries so uh, highly overrated i i just think there are ways to do it that are, are a lot less likely to get your guys hurt. And I haven't seen a game like one yet, but Hey, maybe, th- maybe this conversation, maybe someone has a good one that they can send to us. <laughs> I'll reach out. I, I, I'm saying highly, highly overrated. I, you, Patrick, you just say, you just reach a spot in my heart with that question. So highly <laughs> overrated. I, I assume then when you are practicing, you're just putting an emphasis on tracking rebounds or how are you then? Yeah you know, putting value on rebounding, uh, being talking about a ton, uh, and, and Rick Majerus, again, circle, you know, Rick Majerus, one of the best coaches of all time, in my opinion, he would do three re- rebounding drills. They would see they, this is old school. They would start practice on a Friday. He would do three rebounding drills on Friday, three on Saturday, three on Sunday, and they wouldn't do another drill the rest of the year. Now, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, three on Friday, three on Saturday, three on Sunday. They'd say, this is really important to us, but they wouldn't do another rebounding drill all year after that but it just would constantly be talked about within their five on five and there, he would not let an out of area rebound go without their players seeing it the next day on film. So again, I think it's about, this is really important to us. We're going to hold you accountable. We're constantly going to be talking about in five on five play. We're going to see it on film. We're going to talk about a ton. I just don't think it makes sense to go bone on bone and risk injury. And I think there are other ways to be good at rebounding than, being a football coach, yelling at them to go harder. Um, so talking about constantly five guys rebounding, your guards coming back. We've been very good on the defensive glass over the last four years at Army, and a lot of it has to do with 
our guards coming back to rebound. And it's amazing the rebounding numbers our 5'10, 5'11 guards have had because they simply pursue the basketball. I really think that the point guard is in a great defense rebounding situation because he doesn't need to worry about boxing out. He checks his man. No one in the league goes with their with their point guard. And he can fly in and really pursue the basketball, see the ball, trace the ball with his eyes, and go get it while all his teammates are doing the hard work of boxing out. And now that's the best way to start our break. Um, so I think, you know, talk about it nonstop, make sure they're seeing it on film. And then, uh, you know, in a well-placed rebounding drill every now and then to say this is important because understand we, uh, you know, Navy is an elite offensive rebounding team. And, you know, we, you know, our rebounding drills beat Navy rebounding, like, cause that's what we're going to be playing against. We're going to need to be able to get our, get their misses back. We're going to stop, get it. You know, we're going to get a stop. We're going to force a miss. Now we need to finish that stop and finish that possession with a rebound. So, um, you know, we're playing Navy on a Saturday. You better bet we're doing rebounding drill on Thursday and Friday because of the, you know, just importance of limiting their offensive rebounding attack. So highly overrated, but it also depends on who. It also depends on who your rival is. You better, you better be able to go get the ball back from those guys. Yeah. <laughs> All right, sticking with practice, um, five on zero, running your offensive sets. Underrated. Oh, that's that's your that that you know. Steve Clifford says they're they're not able to get. Uh, in the NBA, they're not able to get their fundamental. They, they can't call fundamentals. All, all their players will laugh at them. So he says we call it five on zero, and they don't realize we've been working on fundamentals for the last fifteen minutes. It is so important. I think it's. I think there should be a conditioning element to it. I think there should be. It's so important for the crispness of your offense. And there also is a way as a coach, and this is a Bob Knight idea of there's a way to inject. Uh, get your guys to start understanding the game at a higher level by injecting some variables within your five on O to be able to say, Hey, we're going away. Uh, I want to get at some point to a disco and be able to play to a Chicago throwing the ball in the post. And we're throwing the ball behind the cutter on the weak side. And now that like, you're like, wait, what? But if that call, if that terminology is, is on point with your team, they can all of a sudden a guy has to think, all right, we're going away. We're getting to a split. We're going to disco. We're throwing the ball in the post off of Chicago and we'll look on the weak side. It forces your guys to start thinking at high rate. Uh, if you've ever seen a Princeton offense team practice, you understand the importance of five on O and you're just amazed. I'm always amazed like watching universe of Richmond practice. I remember my jaw dropping when those, uh, all access DVDs came out on championship production and watching those guys run five on O and it looked like a different sport, how hard they were cutting. And I was like, Oh my gosh. So highly underrated, huge fan of five on O basketball, huge fan. Don't call it dummy offense. Well, you also dictate kind of the defense that like, so you call the actions, but then you say, Hey, they're going to be switching everything. So we slip cuts or they're hedging pick and roll. And that's where you can start. Yeah. I think that's where you can start to kind of manipulate some things and challenge your guys to think a little bit and say, Hey, uh, Hey, they're denying the ball back to funk. Um, you know, you know, so let's be ready for, let's be ready for a back door or, Hey, they're, you know, they're hard hedging mm-hmm. with a five switching with a four, start thinking about stuff like that. And I think it's, uh, I think you need to, as a coach, you need to say, make sure it's very clear. This is important to you. Um, yeah. And so, and, you know, be a little, uh, I, I always remember Chris Mack talked about like, hey, if you want good five and oh, you better be ready to be a hard ass about it. Like, no, that's not the speed of our cut. Um, and I joked about it. Like, don't call it dummy offense. Dummy offense sounds like something that we're going to do. Uh, that a dummy could do, you know, um, you know, and I don't want to sound cheesy, but like, you know, dummy offense or five on O attack. Like, doesn't that sound like, doesn't one of those yell to your players? Um, this is really boring. And one, I don't know, maybe is only marginally boring. I don't know. 
I think you kind of hit on it too, yeah. but does the uh, the value of it change with the pace? Like, I mean, is there, hey, we're going to go five and a little bit more walkthrough working on the mental process or does it always think it's got to be high speed to get the effectivity of it? I think um, if you're introducing them for the first time, I think it needs to be slowed down and it's very clear, hey, this is pre-practice. We're walking through this mm-hmm. action. I just don't know if there's anything else we do in basketball in practice that's not full speed. So it's like, why would we not run our, offense and maybe even full speeds on the way, but it's game speed. Now, listen, I crit and one, we talked about Chris Oliver earlier. And one thing he's really challenged me with is like, am I right on that? And the, you know, Chris's big thing is what it doesn't make sense. Put two defenders out there, put, I just don't, I, I haven't found a comfort level with a five on two or five on three that he's found. And maybe I just need to spend more time thinking about that and how it could work. Um, but uh, that's something that I'll challenge myself with. Um, but I think pre-practice is walking through, but as soon as the intro phase is in, or maybe if there's a screw up, hey, let's dial this back, let's walk through it. But other than that, it should be game speed, not full speed, but game speed of well, we're going to be doing things at the speed at which we would do them in a game. It's also it's a great way to teach and challenge without being in the, without physical on uh, physical bone on bone contact. I like this underrated overhead. I'm a big fan. <laughs> it's fun. I, I'm on, I'm on the, I'm, I'm on the spot here. <laughs> We'll we'll stick with uh, practice stuff yeah. on this one. So overrated, underrated, your um, your vanilla shell drill. Uh, uh, overrated. It just it, it's it belongs to a different era. Um, and understand where that shell came from. That shell came from uh, Bob Knight. It came from motion defending motion offenses, jumping to the basketball, and, and you know, and that it was pass oriented offenses. That's no longer how basketball's played. So, you know, I know some shells incorporate the dribble, but I just think there's better ways to do it than the, I mean, the two guys in the corner don't dare lift them to the wings and two guys in the slots. And like, I just don't think basketball's played that way. So I think as coaches, you can get better to defend the actions you're going to see a ton in, um, in it within your league. Now, one of them might be a dribble drive in that kind of space. And my point is that just that vanilla four on four shell for one, isn't the game played with a fifth guy, uh, Jeff Van Gundy. I remember toward practices, uh, college basketball practice for a fall. And he, you know, his big response was is college basketball played five on five. Cause all I ever <laughs> see is three on three and four on four drills. So, um, <laughs> my point is I think as coaches, you can, you can get to what you want to work on better than just saying four on four shell, because someone did it 60 years ago playing against different offenses. Um, now I think there are times in which you're working on positioning and gap positioning and defending the dribble without a ball screen or without, you know, significant actions. Sure. But I actually think there's better ways to do that and play four on four. I think maybe three on three, two on two on a side, there's different ways to do it. So I'm saying highly overrated. Okay. Sticking with old school stuff, overrated, underrated flex offense. Uh, I, can we say moderately rated? I just think there's <laughs> properly I'm, rated. I'm all, properly for rated. A good, I'm all for a properly rated. I should say uh, properly rated. I'm, I, I just think there's some value. Maybe that high school coach that's been running flex the last 20 years and won't budge. Maybe he's overrating it a little bit, but it, it, it's funny that, you know, it's a it's an action that NBA teams score off of and they can get it. And I love a good I love a good flex screen, you know, small for a big, get them going across the going to get them going across the lane, looking for a potential layup into a down screen with another big. Like I, I think there's value in that. I, I do. And I think there there should be a set or two you have within your repertoire with a with a flex action, either at the end of it or or a part of it. So I'm saying properly rated. I, I think a lot of people love to like hate on it. And I think maybe there's some struggle if you're running it as your only scoring option, which uh, 
might've been the case in the mid 2000, uh, main high school basketball for a lot of the teams in our league, including maybe our program at times. Uh, there's some, you know, there's some trouble with that, but I, I do think there's something to the NBA constantly being featured within different sets and different packages. So I'm saying properly rated, not as bad as everyone makes it out to be. Well, we've seen a lot of the film from Europe and even the NBA right now is they're connecting an action to the flex action, Correct. which makes it really hard to guard. So they'll go flex into Spain, flex into a, you know, spread, pick and roll, flex into something else, which is really yeah, absolutely. hard to guard. Flex into a Chicago action. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Sticking with the flex coach, if a screeners, uh, if a shooter is setting that flex screen to come off that down screen, what are you teaching defensively with the defending the screener? Are, are you a quick bump, no bump. If you know the shooter's coming off that down screen, which way do you want, which way are you guys forcing the, your, the guy receiving the flex screen, go over, go under? Um, you know, I think one is you should be jumping to the basketball. Now they, and this is what Dan said is that there are like, it's tough when it's at the end of an action and they really get you moving around, but a, a generic, a regular flex screen, you, there should be the balls on the other side floor there's no reason to get hit on that screen by the guy coming off the flex screen. So what we'll talk about a lot is we're giving like, you need to get through that without much help because the second that screener opens up, you're just dead coming off that. If that's a shooter come with setting the flat screen and ready to come off the down screen. So we really, what we'll talk about is we'll call it no coverage um, of, we're not giving coverage on that flex screen because that screener and that screen defender has to be ready to bust through that down screen and get through that down screen. So we'll call what's no coverage. We'll just stay attached to that flex screener and give that guy the license come over the top or underneath. We prefer over the top of you jump to the basketball and that flex cutter, you're ready to meet that flex cutter on the other side and giving that screener just your only focus is ready to beat that down screen up the floor. But, but, our, but our, our other assistants are going to laugh at me answering a defensive question because they'll say Zach hasn't, <laughs> Zach hasn't focused on the defense side of the floor in about two and a half years. But the point is, if you're going to be, a, if you're going to focus offense, you need to understand what the defense is doing off yeah. defensively. You need to understand why is the offense doing that, but they're still going to get a chuckle out of uh, me answering a defense question on a podcast. So, <laughs> uh, Giving your players scouting reports. I like where you're going with this. Um, I'm going to say overrated with just the idea of, I think we've understood. And I think the rest of the coaching communities come along with it. It just doesn't make sense to give that five page thick document to the guys. Cause I don't think that's how basketball's played. I think you constantly need to be thinking about what does they, what do they need to know? And can we give that to them in bullet points and precise things about who they are guarding? Um, and I just think there are better ways to do it. I think there's film. That's the better ways to do it. Sending it to them on their phone is a better way to do it. Um, so I think constantly, I think we've, as coaches, we've kind of, uh, I think we got a little aggressive there at some point. And I think we're scaling this back to what do they need to know? And let's not clutter their minds. Um, but there's other, there are other programs that want a ton of games operating with a very scouting intensive, uh, environment. So I'm going to say overrated with an understanding that there's there's a lot of ways to win and i mean there's a team uh that went to the final four and i was amazed at their game prep and how good it was but also how much information they gave their players that they were able to take in it was impressive so i'm gonna say overrated with an understanding i might be wrong in your opinion what has more value giving your players you know bullet points about specific players they're going to be playing or giving them bullet points about their offense sets or actions they're going to be running 
I think they need to see those sets on film and I think they need to see them live and watching them in person where they're seeing it from. Um, I think though the base level of scouting is KYP, know who you're playing against, know his strengths, know who he is, know like, you know, Brad Stevens says the first layer of a closeout is know who you're closing out to. But I think um, we, you don't need three paragraphs to describe who, who who Daniel is and what he does well. Is he a shooter? Is he a non-shooter? Is he a righty driver? Is he a lefty driver? Like, um, does he use shot fakes at the, uh, the before his dribble or after his dribble? The, you know, does he get to does he get to free throw line? Is he crashing the glass from the perimeter? Um, do they like to you know? Does he like to go and catch? Like, I think that you can you can solve it in a lot different ways than maybe that three paragraph uh, that three paragraph. Uh, you know, you know, uh, yeah. description. Yeah. Um, but I do it makes I, us feel good as coaches. Though. Exactly. <laughs> it, 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 Mike McDonald, who's a great coach at the D2 level, um, who's been a mentor of mine, will always talk about, are you doing it? Cause you think it works or does it just make you feel better? And right. the, he started asking me that question and I'm, I'm scared to answer that question off times in practice in February. Cause oftentimes that answer is just, it made me feel better. I don't know how much impact it actually had. So I think it's a great question to ask yourself does it work or does it just make you feel better? And uh, I think more times you can ask yourself that question and be honest with the answer. I think you can really get some good places with your team. My last one, leadership books, coach. Uh, I overrated or underrated. Um, Oh, the good ones are so good. Um, You know what? I'm going to say underrated. I I just, I'm a, I'm a book guy. You're going to, it's, I'm going to be really hard to call books overrated. I understand sometimes they can speak in platitudes, but you get the good ones, man. They're so good. Um, Now the generic one you're pulling off the shelf, like I would hit or miss, but I mean, the good ones are so good. So I'm going to say underrated just because now you're also talking to a book nerd. So you're not, you're not going to catch me calling book overrated. So. Score takes care of itself. If you have anyone listening that hasn't read Score takes care of itself, that's a that's the best one. And if I could say one more, what you do is who you are. So those are the two I recommend. Yeah, I wasn't going to get through this without recommending two books. I recommended uh, Brene Brown earlier. So yeah, we know you're a big book guy, and that honestly, so many of the books I've read have come from some of your suggestions as well. So um, really do appreciate that. But to kind of follow up to Pat's question, though. If you're going to, when you recommend leadership books, you know, there's, there's just so many out there. Yeah. Like for you, when you go to try to find a new one to read, is it more interesting for you to find a leadership book by say a, a really famous coach that's won all these championships and it's kind of a, you know, they're telling stories about yeah. how they won the titles or, you know, more of a, um, a lesser known, more tactical type of leadership book from yeah. someone else? Well, I think the lesser known, but also I think like Oftentimes the sports coach book is so bad. It's such a, like such a trope that's been just done over and over again. And I think you get a lot of survivorship bias on it. Like I won a lot of games. So therefore what I did must've been successful. So, I mean, there's some good sports coach books, but I really try to trend towards away from those and really try to, um, you know, and and try to get to some other ones. Oh, some great ones written by basketball coaches like Carolina way by Dean Smith's like a one that I think is like, is the exact formulaic like approach, but it actually really works. Um, mm-hmm. I also think there's something to Dean Smith that like, again, like we're obsessed with core values. Now he did it 60 years ago and I, I still haven't found a better set of core values and play hard, play smart, play together again, just going back to Dean Smith and how good he is. But like my life on a napkin is just terrific. Uh, smart take from the strong by Pete Carrill is really good. And actually in a way that I love that it's not just story, story, story. It's kind of got a unique twist to it. That's awesome. 
addictive NZO's uh, books are great. Well, you know, centered around PGC. So I'm more inclined to go away from the basketball and the sports just because I think oftentimes it gets to a kind of pretty formulaic approach. But uh, you know, I'll trend more towards a business or even a military side of things. But also, you're talking to a guy that reads too many books, so um, you know, <laughs> I, I've never really said no to one. So if some, if some, if you one of you two hits me up with a book or a coach I like hits me up with a book. And sure enough, I'm probably much of my girlfriend's chagrin. I'm probably buying it on Amazon. And that's why, uh, that's why there's a whole corner of this living room. That's, uh, about six feet tall with books. So. Well, coach, you're off the hot seat for, um, overrated, underrated. Yeah, you survived. I'm going to get a bunch of angry emails from like rebounding, from like rebounding gurus <laughs> yeah. calling me in a hole. So you guys got me in trouble. You can wait till we give up 55% offense rebound percentage against Navy in a couple of months. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, like, oh yeah, rebounding drills overrated. Huh? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, well, Zach, this has been, this has been awesome. Um, yeah. We hope to have you back sometime again in the future and uh, we'll, we'll do this again. Yeah, maybe we can even do a film session or something. We'll figure something out. That'd be fun. That would be, be really fun. fun. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You're someone that, you know, you're constantly uh, looking, you know, reading books and, yeah. and seeking knowledge and all, all that sort of stuff. What's one of the best investments that you've made in your career as a coach? Um, it's actually not an investment I've made. It's I've been fortunate. Um, sports code huddle and just the idea of clipping your own practice film and watching your own team and really, you know, having a coach, having a head coach that's obsessive about practice and watching practice and providing film for your team. So I would say that with the idea of so often we can get in, I'm as guilty as anyone with this of like scheme, scheme, scheme. I'll look what this great team ran against the edge. Ultimately there's nothing that drives winning more than watching your own film and trying to find tweaks and improvements on the margin saying, we got to get Tucker Blackwell better at this and being able to show Tucker Blackwell that on film and being able to go work with him on the court. There's nothing better that drives winning. So I've been fortunate the programs I've been, um, I'm so fortunate that I wasn't a program that was just like, no, we're just going to use synergy for scouting just because I think there's, you can scout to a higher level with sports code huddle. So I, I, I don't know if that makes sense. Um, I don't, I don't know if that makes sense with that. I'll, I'll also, oh, yeah. um, I'll also, you know, I'm not afraid to admit, you know, my, my, my dad and my parents worked very, my mom and dad worked very hard and they, I, I didn't grow up, um, wanting for things. And so early on in my career, my dad hooked his credit card up with Amazon. So any book I wanted, I could just buy without fear of like, Hey, am I going to be able to cover rent next month? And am I going to like, so, mm -hmm. um, I also understand that I've, um, another investment that's really helped me is just that being able to constantly being able to add my knowledge through books and through championship productions with videos. So, um, that those are, I would say sports code huddle because of how head coaches have taught me to watch film and break down film for improvement within our own team, but also just the various books I've stolen from. Cause nothing I said today was stuff I've come up on my own. All of it was stuff I saw from another coach or I learned from another coach that maybe through a book or maybe him having a great conversation. Um, and if I can add a third investment, it's every dollar I've spent, um, on gas going to watch someone practice. Um, again, we glorify scheme ultimately success is found in your fundamentals of what you do every day. And we can get so, we can get so pulled in different directions with scheme and video and what this team did. We're ultimately like, 
what you do is every day, what you do every day is what ends up giving you the foundation of success. So, um, watching people practice, there's nothing better that uh, driving ideas in your head than watching someone practice and then talking to the master saying, why do you guys do that drill? Um, so I would say those three things, sports code huddle, being able to, uh, read great books and read them over and over again. And then, uh, three would be every dollar I've spent watching practice. So I went in three different directions there. My bad. Loved it. Loved it. You're always giving extra. Yeah. So there's no wrong answer yeah. on that one. <laughs> yeah. Well, Zach, thank you very much for, for coming on this afternoon. Um, this has been this has been really fun for us and um like just personally i know you know for myself i know pat too been big fans of what you've done you've helped the community so much um and so this has been awesome to have you on so thank you i appreciate having this was every bit as nerdy as i thought this this has been (laughs) awesome i appreciate i love what you guys are doing it really is cool how you're how you're highlighting coaches at different levels that uh, you know actually don't make it to the forefront i love the stuff with europe i love the small college stuff because there's no monopoly no level has monopoly on great coaches i think you've done a really good job of showing some coaches at levels that wouldn't necessarily make it um onto tv that you know are doing some really good stuff so i I appreciate that thank you thank you good luck this year thanks be navy Thank you so much for tuning in. Please make sure to subscribe. Have a great week coaching, and we'll see you next time on Slapping Glass.